0: So our our final speaker, and this is actually, I think, a a wonderful way to conclude because these issues have come come up in different ways, and that is both the social determinants of um, our patients' outcomes and health and also comorbidities that affect uh, patient care and even the use and drug interactions with antiretrovirals. So we're going to have a broad and also focused discussion of the Opiate Crisis in America, a Big Mistake, an overaggressive Industry, a Tricky Brain, and the 16 milligrams that will bring your child back to college by Professor Petros Levon- Levonis, who's a professor and chair of psychiatry at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. Peter. You want to do it that way rather than sitting Yeah, there. I think I'll do it that way. Okay. And I'll do it that way too.
1: Okay. So thanks so much for inviting me to give this talk uh, today. It's a great honor to, to be here and join you uh, in this presentation. I know it's uh, uh, late in the day, and uh, so I particularly appreciate the people who stayed to hear something about uh, addiction. So um, no uh, disclosures. And um, the main... Uh, The the way that I would like us to do this is to first talk about the basic model, how we understand addiction in 2018, uh, then delve a little more into the neurobiology of addiction from a more uh, um, scientific perspective, of course before moving into addiction treatment and a couple of new directions. So in some ways it's the whole arc of uh, addiction medicine in 40 minutes. So yes, it can be done, I hope. Right. so the basic model, how do we see addiction. Uh, up until about 1980 or so, people thought that addiction was a moral failure. Uh, the weaklings of the world, the, uh, uh, the people who didn't have the strong moral fiber would be the ones who would succumb to the temptations of drugs and alcohol. And somewhere around 1980, um, people came around and said, no, 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 no. Um, addiction is a medical illness, very much like diabetes, and uh, HIV, and schizophrenia, and depression. And the true causes of the addiction are these biological, psychological, and social forces. The biological, psychological, and social forces, when they come together in a particular nightmarish fashion, they change something in the brain, they flip the brain switch on, and from that point, the addiction has a life of its own, to a very large extent, independent of the forces that set it in motion to begin with. Okay, what am I talking about here? Um, Biological forces in addiction, primarily genetics. If both your parents are alcoholics, you have seven times the chance of the general public to be an alcoholic yourself. Psychological forces, um, sometimes people do drugs in order to get high. A lot of times people do drugs in order to self-medicate, underlining, untreated, underappreciated psychological and psychiatric problems. Um, This is an interesting point here because when self-medication theory came around, it really was a revolutionary way of uh, making a counterbalance to the idea that People feel normal and they just do the drugs in order to get high. Self-medication says, no, 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 people don't do drugs in order to escape. People do drugs in order to arrive. The opposite idea of just normalizing. And of course, from a psychological perspective, in 2018, we also appreciate a third reason, a third psychological reason why people use drugs, and that is performance enhancement. Um, Methylphenidate for better SAT scores. uh, Sildenafil for better sexual performance. Uh, um, anabolic steroids for better uh, sports performance. So uh, the classic performance enhancement, the third psychological reason why people would engage in uh, using drugs. And then of course the social reasons, the microenvironments, the subcultures, the neighborhoods within which we all live and love and play and work that define the addiction. So when all these things come together in a particularly complex and uh, really nasty way, they flip that brain switch on, and then the addiction settles in. Now, this has significant clinical implications because quite often a patient would come in to see me and say, you know what, doc? I had some original trauma when I was a kid, which made me depressed, which made me self-medicate with cocaine. If only you are smart enough to go back in there, unpack the original trauma, lance the boil as freud would say express the pass relieve the pressure then boom i wouldn't be depressed i wouldn't need the cocaine and i will be home free for the rest of my life unfortunately it's not that simple why because as soon as that brain switch gets turned on once that's flipped on it stays there and chances are that in order for that person to do well of course we're going to do whatever we can to make things better whatever it is that caused the the addiction, but don't expect that this by itself will cure the addiction. Chances are the person will need, let's say an antidepressant for the depression, but also addiction treatment above and beyond whatever it is that you're gonna try to do on the left side of this diagram. Okay, Uh, I was given 40 minutes, I, I used three and that's pretty much it. Uh, this, is a <laughs> this is it. That's how we understand addiction. That's how we use it. That's how uh, we treat our patients. Wonderful model, except that it has a major flaw. Taken to the extreme, it suggests that in the absence of significant biological, psychological and social forces, the risk of addiction is negligible. Let's think about this. You have a 16-year-old daughter. And let's say this 16-year-old, her parents do not smoke cigarettes, her grandparents do not smoke cigarettes, no genetic load. Let's say that 16-year-old has no performance enhancement issues, no ADHD, no depression, no anxiety, no eating disorders, nothing to self-medicate against. And let's say that 16-year-old lives in an environment where her peer group do not smoke cigarettes. Her friends, her environment does not smoke cigarettes. would it be okay to go up to her and say, smoke away. You can smoke all the cigarettes in the world you want and you will never become addicted to nicotine. Why? Because you lack the true causes of addiction, which are these biopsychosocial forces. How insane would that be? Right? And that's the reason why we have added use of the drug itself as an independent variable that also feeds into the brain switch. Of course, if you have these biopsychosocial vulnerabilities, your risk of addiction gets much, much, much worse. Now, what I'm saying is not theoretical. Unfortunately, that's exactly the major medical mistake at the root of the opioid disaster. At some point, Very foolishly, we felt that people who do not have a genetic load, who are not psychologically burdened, and who do not live in down and out neighborhoods, would not be addicted to opioids, and we just, we can prescribe away. Any kind of pain the patient has, maximum dose of opioids, maximum frequency of opioids, as many refills as the patient wants, because no, no, no pain should ever go untreated. I started medical school in 1986, and I remember very, very well that that was the mantra. If I wanted to be a forward-thinking physician, not like a goon of yesteryears like my father and so on, I would just prescribe, 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 I wouldn't suffer from opiophobia or something like that. And if anybody were to raise their hand and say, excuse me, isn't there a risk of addiction? Boom, the answer would come immediate and would say, we've studied it and we now know that the risk of addiction is 12,000 to four. Out of 12,000 people who take opioids, four will end up being addicted. And the reference is in the New England Journal of Medicine and it was given very swiftly and very authoritatively. What you have in front of you is one of the most frequently cited articles in all of medical literature. It turns out it's not an article at all. It's a letter to the editor, 10 and a half lines, 10 and a half of the most damaging lines in all of medicine. Why? Because it gave us this erroneous ratio of 12,000 to four. Generations of physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants and the general public have been fed that kind of disaster. Dr. Zik very recently, three or four months ago, He gave an interview and said it was the biggest mistake of his life, but the damage was done. All right. Medical mistake at the core of the problem. And then, what do we have? The pharmaceutical industry capitalizing on that medical mistake, taking cancer literature and pain and wholesaling wholesale is such a word i don't know but in a wholesale fashion applying it to non-cancer pain and promising the world to our poor patients if you feel like you're in pins and needles down there you're going to take our wonderful medications and you're going to emerge and you're going to be beautiful and strong and healthy and functional and all the wonderful things are going to come your way a major component of the opioid disaster is the greediness of the pharmaceutical industry and then of course uh money and influence go hand in hand the pharmaceutical industry lobbied what was called back then the jcho the joint commission and they made pain the fifth vital sign an awful awful decision that fed into the epidemic and uh, of course made millions and millions for the pharmaceutical industry. As you know, there were several lawsuits, uh, 660 million dollar settlements against Purdue Pharma and several other companies, but of course that is slap on the wrist if you've made so much money from OxyContin. All right, so this is what happened. We started with a medical mistake We'll have the second component, which is the pharmaceutical industry and the greediness of the pharmaceutical industry. And then we have the third component that i are going to come in a little later, which is the tricky brain, the neurobiology of our own brain and how that also creates the third force in the perfect storm that ended, ended in the opioid epidemic. This is the map of the United States in 1999. Lower yellows uh, show lower rates of Fainter yellows show show lower rates of admissions for uh, prescription opioids. non heroin opioids and prescription opioids are the same thing. Um, And of course, heavier reds have higher rates of admissions for prescription opioids. This is 1999, 2001, 2003, 2005, 2007, 2009. And somewhere there around 2009, 2010, we really, really, really felt that we've seen the worst, that this is the height of the epidemic. A lot of us uh, fought the JCHO, we kicked out the fifth vital sign, we created the uh, uh, prescription monitoring programs, changed the formulations of, of the pills so they cannot be uh, uh, as addictive, uh, crushed and, and injected as easily, and all that good stuff. Now, look what happened, though. If you, around 2010, if you just stand on one leg and squinch your eyes a little bit, and, you know, you may feel that there is a plateauing of the blue curve of the prescription opioids. On the y-axis, we have mortality here. So now we're talking about deaths from opioids. And I think that's the effect of all these interventions I've been mentioning. But, a little too little too late, You've got all these people addicted to the prescription opioids. You take the prescription opioids away from them. What are they going to do? Heroin, easily available, rather cheap, and very pure, very pure, which means that you don't have to use it intravenously. You can do it intranasally and you get almost the same effect as you would if you were to do it by injection. A huge selling point for heroin. As you know from the HIV world, especially our younger people have polarized what is good and what's bad. Bad is intercourse and intravenous use. Good is oral sex and um, pills and anything that is not injectable. In high schools now, intercourse, uh, intercourse rates are falling and oral sex rates are skyrocketing. In a similar kind of fashion, what we see is that if it is injectable, it is frowned upon, but if it's intranasal or as a pill, it is quite celebrated. And now we have, after 2010, the skyrocketing of the uh, heroin issue. And then around 2004, we felt, OK, we've seen the worst of things. All right, this is a complicated slide here, but let's try to see it. The purple curve is the prescription opioids what we've been seeing in the previous slides That's so the purple curve the blue curve is heroin as you see around 2010 is when heroin really takes off and then what happens around 2003-2004 is the new menace of fentanyl carfentanil the synthetic opioids with an incredible affinity for the mu opioid receptor slow dissociation incredible addictiveness and now look at the green line, which is the overall death uh, from opioids, which I do want you to appreciate that around 2010, we really felt it cannot possibly get any worse than that. And look at that. Look, look what happens between 2015, not even 2014, the, sh- the, the shape of the curve, the, the steepness of this death rate. All right. This is uh, a comparison of heroin to fentanyl to carfentanil. You may have heard also in the news where uh, police officers would go to do some arrests and simply by inhaling some of that uh, carfentanil, they experience a respiratory distress. Of course, a lot of them are opioid naive, which makes it much worse. Okay. Moving on to the third part, the third culprit in the opioid epidemic, the neurobiology of addiction. And I do want to spend some time on this part. This is, I think, the, probably uh, the central part of, of this talk. Um, all of us have these pleasure-reward pathways in our brains. Uh, that hover around the nucleus accumbens and related areas, uh, the mesolimbic system, and it's a dopaminergic system, of course. And what this system does is it scans the world at all times for things that are pleasurable and rewarding. Actually, it does more than that. It scans the world for things that are pleasurable, rewarding, and salient that are important to us. Imagine your own dopamine level at the nucleus accumbens this very moment. Nothing too good is happening. Nothing too bad is happening. It's about 100%, right? Just hovers around 100%. If you had an amazing meal right now, chances are that your dopamine level at the nucleus accumbens would jump to about 150% of its baseline. In the highly unlikely situation you had sex right now, your dopamine level at the nucleus accumbens would jump to about 200% of its baseline, twice the job of food. Okay? Now, out of 30 million chemicals that we have identified in all of the universe. There are only about 250 that have this particular ability to go exactly at the same centers in the brain, activate the nucleus accumbens in related areas, and, of course, these are the addictive drugs. As you see, most of them jump the dopamine level of the nucleus accumbens to about 200 to percent of its baseline. The, The stimulants, cocaine, goes more than that to about 300% of the baseline. And uh, I don't have it here, but amphetamines and methamphetamines jump the dopamine level of the nucleus accumbens to way over a thousand percent, possibly several thousand percent of the baseline. The nuclear uh, weapon in our brains as contrasted to the more conventional weapons of all these other drugs of abuse. Um, I may say a word about, uh, about crystal methamphetamine, since this audience here is uh, particularly concerned with that. Obviously, in New York City, the crystal methamphetamine uh, hit uh, the gay community particularly hard. Um, now the fact that crystal methamphetamine jumps the dopamine level of the nucleus accumbens to perhaps 3,000, 4,000 percent of its baseline has clinical implications. Before crystal methamphetamine came to town, big part of addiction treatment was to convince the patient that life in sobriety will be as exciting, if not more exciting, than it was when they were drinking and drugging. You can't possibly look a crystal metapheramine addict in the eye and say, trust me sex in sobriety will be as exciting, if not more exciting than it was when you were high on crystal methamphetamine. They will immediately know that you have not used the drug, you don't know what you're talking about, they will discredit you, you haven't done your homework, you haven't looked at the texts. So very often now talk uh, to our patients about trade-offs. Sure, you're not gonna have that kind of sex again, but perhaps you may want to keep your teeth, or you may want to I don't know keep your life or keep your children or keep other things that are maybe salient for you and that is the kind of psychotherapy that we do now with our patients okay Um, all right so these drugs of abuse come in uh, hijack the pleasure reward pathways of the brain ultimately from a neurobiological perspective addiction is the hijacking of the pleasure reward pathways of the brain But once they do that, the hijacked pleasure-reward pathways stay so for a long, long time, if not for the rest of the person's life. Now, don't take me wrong here. I'm not suggesting that people who get addicted do not recover. In fact, the, the majority of people who at some point in their lives met criteria for a substance use disorder will end up beating the disorder. But the vulnerability to go back to using stays with you for a long, long time, if not for the rest of your life. All right nobody wakes up one morning and says i want to be a cigarette smoker it takes several weeks several months to become addicted to nicotine correct let's say you do become addicted to nicotine and you smoke two packs a day for several years and then you manage to quit you quit smoking and for 20 years you haven't had a single puff full 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 sobriety 20 years in your sobriety As you very well know, the body is incredibly forgiving. A lot of your tissues have healed back. Uh, Your risk of cardiovascular illness goes back to almost as if you haven't had a single cigarette in your life. All kinds of good things happen from the neck down. So 20 years in your sobriety, you have a few puffs. Do you expect that it's going to take several weeks and several months to become addicted to nicotine again, or you're going to go back to two packs a day within a matter of days? What's going to happen? you're going to go back to two packs a day within a matter of days. And the reason for that is the incredible permanence of the hijacked pleasure reward pathways of the brain. The reason for that incredible permanence is geographical, is anatomical. Just above the nucleus accumbens and a little bit to the side is the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain. Just below the nucleus accumbens and part of the nucleus accumbens is the limbic system, which of course is responsible for emotions. So imagine the stronghold that these hijacked pleasure-reward pathways take on our existence when they're sandwiched between our memories and our emotions. And that's why we think that they're so darn permanent. Now, miles and miles and miles away from this whole drama that happens right here in the more primitive part of the brain, just above the spinal column, are the frontal lobes. And the frontal lobes of course are responsible for rational thinking for cognition abstraction executive function the thing the the cognitive part of our existence fortunately or unfortunately this part of the brain is not very well connected to the more primitive part of the brain before the age of 22 Not even the hardware is fully developed between the frontal lobes and the limbic system. That's how we start to understand the adolescent. The adolescent who falls in love and fails to see the light at the end of the tunnel is not so much that she or he does not have fully developed frontal lobes. This is part of it, but these kids can solve quadratic equations and they can do all kinds of very complex cognitive things. The main problem is that they cannot recruit those frontal lobes all that easily to modulate an explosive limbic system. This disconnect, that of course survives in adulthood, but will become better and better at making connections as we we become wiser and older, is not all bad news. How do we understand the appreciation of the arts, or music, or a sports event, or even have sex, unless you are able to disconnect the frontal lobes from the limbic system? The very idea of allowing another human being to enter your body or your body entering another human being is absolutely absurd from a frontal lobe perspective. (laughs) The frontal lobes would absolutely never allow us to have sex. It's a dangerous thing. It's a degrading thing. It's just absolutely insane. (laughs) But we do make this dissociation and we're able to engage in sexual activity. Of course, all this is nice and good until the time when your pleasure reward pathways have been hijacked by a drug of abuse, at which point the one agency that you have that can keep the beast at bay is not all that available to you. Ultimately, the war on drugs becomes a war between the hijacked pleasure reward pathways that scream, I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need, and the frontal lobes that try to keep the patient safe. When the hijacked pleasure reward pathways win, The patient relapses. When the frontal lobes win, the patient is in recovery. This is the two-part equation. When you have an addicted patient in front of you, I would like you to visualize in some way how strong are this person's hijacked, pleasure-reward pathways, versus how strong is her or his resolve to stay sober. If the hijacked, pleasure-reward pathways are higher, than the frontal lobes and the resolve to stay sober, the patient relapses. If the frontal lobes are higher, stronger than the hijacked pleasure-reward pathways, the patient is in recovery. The magnitude of the gap between these two agencies gives us a good measure of the stability of the patient's recovery. The further away these two agencies are from each other, the more stable the patient is in her or his recovery. Think about the power of group psychotherapy in addiction treatment. Why are groups so important? Because you are in a group of peers, all of whom have been there. And they can recognize that the nails and the hair and the attitudes and the affiliations and the your entire presence is starting to look like the way you did when you were drinking and dragging. In neurobiological terms, that means that the hijacked pleasure-reward pathways are waking up and are exerting the pressure. Maybe they have not overwhelmed the frontal lobes yet. Maybe you're a dry drunk on your way marching towards a catastrophe, at which point the group can get together and say, do something. Go see your doctor. Go to a, an AA meeting. Call your sponsor. Call your N.P. Do something to re-establish the gap between these two agencies and therefore stay sober. Okay? Our job as clinicians is twofold. On one hand, we try to cool down the underlying engine the best we can, and we do that with medications when we have them available to us. And on the other hand, we try to beef up those frontal lobes the best we can, and we do that with psychotherapy and counseling. Very, very often, the combination of psychotherapy and counseling with medications maximize the gap between these two parts and give us the best results. Okay? All right. Moving on to the final part, the addiction treatments. Uh, first idea, back in 1950s, 1960s, psychoanalysis. We didn't really know anything else. Just put the person on the couch and hope for the best. Um, disaster d and help at all. Why was it a disaster? What does psychoanalysis do best? Psychoanalysis is fantastic in shrinking the frontal lobes. That's why we're called shrinks, the psychiatrist. We shrink the frontal lobes and we allow the more primitive part of the brain to take over. Essentially, we give permission to our patients to break some rules, have some fun, enjoy the world and be happy. And it's not really all that difficult either. You tell an addicted patient that what I want to do with you is to shrink your frontal lobe so that I can allow the more primitive part of the brain to take over They are going to look at you as if you have three heads. The task is exactly the opposite, is to beef up this part in order to keep the patient safe. And that's why it was a huge disaster, and we put aside. The second idea was a synonym from California, lock them up, confront the denial, break down those defenses, just really kind of a very harsh, very highly confrontational approach It was absolutely a disaster as well and we put that aside and what we ended up with is the three pillars of addiction treatment medications 12-step work psychotherapy and counseling these are the three major parts of addiction treatment in 2018 I put motivational interviewing there as an example of psychotherapy and counseling but also something that has combined a lot of Cognitive behavioral therapy, supportive psychotherapy, uh, other psychotherapies elements in it. I want to just make a couple of points about this, 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 uh, these treatments. Um, this is a study we did at Bellevue some time ago, but I don't think things have changed much since then. We asked physicians to rank 11 things that they felt were more, most important in patient's recovery okay and they put housing, government, medical service on top, AA, spirituality, God on the bottom and then we went and we asked patients the same question please rank these 11 things as to what's most important for your recovery and a very different picture emerged where inner peace and God and AA were very high up job and government and patient services at the bottom so we live in a very different world than our patients. Our values as medical staff are significantly different than our patients' values. And then Lisa Goldfarb had the amazing idea of going back and asking the medical staff the following question, brilliant. What do you think the patients think is most important for the recovery? We asked the medical staff what they thought the patients thought was most important for the recovery. And look at that. Once again, housing and outpatient treatment and medical services and job on the very top. God and spirituality and community and near peace on the very bottom. So not only we live on a very different page than our patients, we don't even have a clue what that page is that our patients live in. A huge disconnect between the medical staff and our patients. I'm going to not spend much time about motivational interviewing. It has been a wonderful way of organizing, as I said before, a lot of other psychotherapies and particularly good in helping patients in the pre-contemplation and contemplation stages of change. I don't know if you guys remember, but way back, we used to say the horrible thing to our patients. Come see me when you are ready. I've got nothing to offer to you unless you are ready to change. It's not because we're mean people. It's just because we didn't have the tools, we didn't have the technology to start working with people in pre-contemplation and contemplation stages of change. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, as amazingly wonderful as it is, it requires some significant motivation. It has a lot of structure, it has homework, it has consistency to it. You roll your sleeves up and you really go working at it. How are you gonna do that with a 16-year-old who smokes marijuana and feels that there's absolutely nothing wrong with it? You have to go with the motivational interviewing techniques which at least in the earlier stages, celebrate ambivalence, try to find an opening where the patient is not exactly sure about themselves and then boom, capitalizing on that making the ambivalence bigger, and end up creating the question, what if, what if I were at some point to stop using, what would that look like? A wonderful way, especially for the pre-contemplation and contemplation stages of change. And then finally, that's where the 16 milligrams comes in, medications. Traditionally, in addiction treatment, pharmacotherapy has not done very well in 2018 the psychosocial interventions group psychotherapy individual psychotherapy halfway homes um, 12-step programs these uh, partial hospitalization these are the things that truly make people better but this being said we do have some safe and effective medications that also help the patients in their struggle the way to think about addiction medications is in three major buckets there are some addictions for which we have done very well we have done pharmacotherapy has is a success story there are some addictions for which a record is so-so and there are some addictions for which a record is absolutely pathetic what are the two addictions for which we have done very well Pharmacologically speaking, that we have good medications that we can actually offer something to our patients on our prescription pad. Opioids and tobacco. That's it. Opioids and tobacco. Alcohol falls in the social category. The director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism calls the FDA-approved medications for alcohol hamburger helpers. Uh, I think it's very correct. It's okay. They help a little bit, but they're not going to change the patient's life around and of course There are the other addictions like cannabis and stimulants primarily stimulants uh, and so on the behavioral addictions Gambling sex internet, but we do not have any medications and really we should not be offering anything to our patients in hopes of helping with their addiction That has significant clinical implications why because there will be patients who would come to you and say, you know, you know. Look, I, 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 I've heard all about, I've heard Dr. Levounis' talk, I, I know what he's talking about, about the combination of psychosocial interventions with pharmacological interventions. I tell you, I'm never gonna go to AA. I'm never gonna go to counseling. I hate hard chairs. I hate groups. It's not gonna happen. Give me my pill, send me my merry way, and I'll be just fine. Is it ethical for you to write the medication for the patient or not? That's the question. You may remember from, uh, from medical school, the ethical dilemmas, a, a, a woman with a fungating breast mass comes to you and says, I don't want to see the surgeon, I just want some antibiotics to cool down the infection. How ethical is it for you to collude in a treatment that is doomed to failure? So there is an ethical dilemma there about whether you prescribe something that you do not think is going to be particularly helping the patient. What I'm suggesting to you is that if you are on the category of the success stories, if the patient suffers either from opioid use disorder or from tobacco use disorder, absolutely prescribe the medication. There is enough evidence to say that the patient has a fighting chance. It is a very reasonable approach to just give the medication and that alone will have a very good chance of getting the patient better. Not the same with alcohol. There is not a shred of evidence that the medications that we have for alcohol will do anything for the patient in the absence of other psychosocial supports. And of course when you get to the stimulants, there's really a no man's land over there. Okay? Alright, so let's go for the success stories. Let's just talk about opioids and tobacco, and t- uh, opioids more, more, more specifically. Traditionally, we have two major strategies in addiction pharmacotherapy. One strategy is an agonist approach. Let me give you a medication that's going to fully activate the receptors of the street drug, or of the drug of abuse, activate the system, and therefore cut down the cravings and keep you safe. The nicotine patch for tobacco, nicotine gum, methadone for opioids, the full agonist approach. On the other extreme, we have an antagonist approach. Let me give you an illustration for opioids. I'm going to block your mu opioid receptors. going to give you a shield. You're going to try to shoot up or use heroin through the nose nothing is going to happen you're not going to feel anything after a while you're going to say too much money too much trouble too much legal exposure and you're not going to use it the amazing innovation over the past few years has been the introduction of a third strategy of the partial agonists which do a little bit of both or actually a lot of both varenicline for tobacco buprenorphine for opioids they give you a shield. I don't know how many of you have patients on varenicline. They say that they smoke cigarettes during the first week while they're on the titration of the varenicline and they don't feel much because the receptors are blocked. But at the same time, they activate the system at the 40% level, cutting down the cravings. An amazing innovation that has a lot of advantages. Two of the major ones of buprenorphine are A, you can use it out of your own office. All you need to do is to take that eight-hour course. You take an eight-hour course and that, for physicians, an eight-hour course, 24 hours for physician assistants and nurse practitioners, and then you become BUP certified and you can prescribe this life-saving medication to your patients. So, first advantage is that it can be given out of your own office. You don't have to send the patient to a clinic. Like, if you wanted to give the patient methadone, you have to send them to a methadone clinic, what is now called an opioid treatment program. The second thing that's wonderful about about buprenorphine is the ceiling effect. You see, even at the very high doses of the opioid, still, you don't pass through the 40% level. And the risk of overdose is negligible. buprenorphine you have to really work very very hard you have to have the mono product you have to inject it get some benzodiazepines on top of that and some alcohol for good measure to end up with an overdose problem with buprenorphine okay so that's pretty much it for our current state of affairs a couple of things have a few more minutes uh, about new (laughs) do very important it's an opportunity to talk about naloxone here Naloxone, as you know, has changed the picture of opioid overdoses. Everybody should have uh, uh, Naloxone kits. Every physician, every nurse practitioner, every physician assistant, any counselor, any social worker. If your patient has uh, uh, any family members who uh, use opioids, everybody should have a Naloxone kit. You can do it as an auto-injector, which is uh, uh, intramuscularly. Uh, is depicted here a lot of the t- we started with the with the intramuscular injections but now most of us do the um, give out the um, intranasal one just because it is much much cheaper and it may be a difference between New York and New Jersey because I think in New York it is more subsidized than it is in New Jersey bottom line everybody has to find out how to get their hands on aloxone and get quite a few kits in their offices all right. finally, a couple of new directions. Where do we go from here? Um, the first one has to do with mindfulness. Um, Nazir Naqvi uh, made a, 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 a life-changing study some 10 years ago uh, and showed that people who have a stroke at the insula lose their interoception. What's interoception? Interoception is an integrative function of the brain that takes uh, all kinds of somatic signals, sorts them, integrates them, and gives some of them meaning and some of them throws them out. That's the concept of interoception, of taking all the somatic signals and integrating them. Now, Nazir Naqvi took people who are heavy, 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 heavy smokers. They have a stroke at the insula. And for the ones who survived, not only they didn't smoke cigarettes, which happens very often after a catastrophic event, but they also reported zero cravings for cigarettes. How insane is that? I mean, I've been saying all along that once you hijack the pleasure reward pathways of the brain, they stay so for a long, long time, if not for the rest of your life. But if you obliterate the insula, then you don't have the ability to integrate those cravings into your meaningful life, and therefore, it's a, as if those cravings do not really exist for you. An amazing new concept. Nazir you know, was a medical student when he published this study, extremely annoying, uh, but you know, it's, uh, it, it changed the way that we think about addiction. So, what we're now working on is duplicating, nobody's suggesting psychosurgery or obliterating anybody's insula, but what we're thinking is through mindfulness exercises, we may make our patients hyper aware of their existence, so they can sharpen their observing ego, stay outside of themselves, and start looking at the craving as happening to somebody else, so that they can ride the craving, experience the plateau, and the eventual resolution of the craving for the drug. In other ways, you are right there, right at the cusp of your, of your um, hijacked perjury reward pathways, overwhelming your frontal lobes. And maybe at that very, very, very last moment, you can play a trick with your brain at the insular level and dissociate yourself from your cravings, allow the concept of interoception to give meaning to all kinds of other things, but not to the craving of the drug. We have exercises like you see your, your, your craving as a, as, a, as a luggage on a baggage claim area at the airport, where it comes close to you and you can take it or you can leave it and you know it's gonna come back out again. All kinds of tricks like that so that you can stay safe. We debated very much whether to publish our our, our book last year uh, with Dr. Zerbo and colleagues because we haven't really crossed our T's and our our I's but we thought it was such an exciting uh, uh, innovation that we ended up putting our thoughts together and publishing it. And finally, this is the last slide of the the talk today. Uh, A little bit of uh, back to the future. This is a reanalysis of the NESARC data, the largest uh, epidemiological uh, study that we have in addiction that very uh, very acute astutely uh, analyzed sexuality not only in terms of identity and behavior but also in terms of attraction most epidemiological studies just stop at sexual identity do you consider yourself straight gay bisexual or neither or sexual behavior do you sleep with men women both or neither but there's also a third dimension to sexuality uh, sexual attraction, that's more of an internal experience that can be best approximated or best uh, understood through dreaming, through masturbation, things of that sort, that of course has a dimensional Kinsey-like uh, uh, feel. So what we have here is an analysis of the risk of substance abuse. The y-axis is some measure of substance use disorders. and the shape of the curve for men and women is about the same so let's just look at the on the left side here for women so what we have here is on green is completely gay yellow is completely straight red is bisexual and then we have these fascinating areas where you are almost gay but not exclusively or almost straight but not exclusively And it seems that people who live in those categories may be at the highest risk of substance use disorders, at which point psychodynamically oriented psychotherapy, the good old Freudian type psychotherapy that does its best job in unpacking our sexuality, at looking at the darkest corners of, of our psyche, may decompress the stress that these people experience and help them not go into drugs but other ways of uh, dealing with life. That is a little speculative, certainly on the new directions part, but uh, quite fascinating that we came back to Freud through a very kind of uh, roundabout way. All right, um, this is it. Two things uh, if you're gonna remember from, uh, from this talk. From a neurobiological perspective, addiction is the hijacking of the pleasure-reward pathways of the brain, which are at war with our frontal lobes. And in terms of effective treatments, 12-step approaches like AA, uh, motivational interviewing and other psychotherapies, and partial agonists, especially buprenorphine for opioids and uh, uh, varenicline for, for tobacco, are what we use most in addiction. Thank you so much.
0: Um, I have a few questions. Sure. Um, Let me see if I can get this right. Given the frontal lobe versus limbic system concept and addictive behaviors, therefore, likelier in those in the latter category, are there any data correlating predicting that behavior in adults attracted to careers, fields, in the arts versus sciences?
1: Uh, Okay. there is some data about uh, left brain and right brain, but uh, that uh, says that uh, perhaps people who are attracted more to uh, more analytical uh, uh, p- pursuits in careers may have more on the left side, while other people being born in the arts may be on the right side, but I haven't seen any data uh, correlating the frontal lobes versus the uh, limbic system for career choices. Uh, people who have hypertrophied frontal lobes uh, are people who may suffer from obsessive compulsive personality disorder or obsessive compulsive personality traits, people who are very perfectionistic, who are just very, very kind of tight, a lot of glue to them. And again, that's where psychotherapy is at its easiest, when we unglue them a little bit and uh, they have a much better life. Why is that funny? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, uh, in medicine, say, if the patient is not on steroids, put them on steroids. If they're on steroids, take them off steroids. In psychiatry, what we say is uh, if the patient has too much glue, you unglue them. If they don't have enough glue, you put a little more glue to it. I mean, that's that's how we see it.
0: (laughs) So can you apply that to um, predictions for HIV clinicians? (laughs) In what way? (laughs) Okay. No, I, okay. I, I, I wouldn't even know how where to start. <laughs> we're we're unpredictable. <laughs> I mean, you can't categorize us. Um, okay. Wow, that was quite an amazing talk. <laughs> uh, I think it has us all thinking about not our just our patients' brains, but our own. <laughs> I, I just, I just remembered one thing. I did give you a little quiz. First of
1: all, the, the, the quiz question that I, that I put in the beginning, you did fantastic. Most of you got it correct. It's buprenorphine. But the, uh, oh, shouldn't be saying that. I'm sorry. Uh, but the other thing is that I gave you your handout, a little quiz. Uh, I did not give you the key to the quiz, but if you feel like taking it, it's very easy. It's the first letter of the patient of which case is the letter of the answer. Uh, for for, for the the correct answer. So you can do your your quiz on your own at some point.
0: So I'd like to ask, a lot of us in our HIV clinics have uh, mental health services available for our patients, and they have mixtures of those, uh, certainly connections to substance abuse uh, um, treatment, um, but maybe less in the way of readily available psychotherapeutic services. And it's not the field that the most psychiatric professionals are attracted to. Any comments about that?
1: A lot of psychiatric uh, residents are attracted to psychotherapy, and they would love to do it, but it's not reimbursed the same way as pharmacotherapy. So unless you live in Manhattan or a few other major urban centers, San Francisco, for example, most psychiatrists do pharmacotherapy, not psychotherapy. Uh, As you said, access to psychotherapy is uh, not very uh, easy. Uh, so uh, it's a major obstacle. Um, but I want to put a pitch in for 12-step programs, for mm-hmm. AA, NA, and the other Crystal Anonymous, uh, and, and so on. Uh, They do an amazing job. They have have hard evidence to show their effectiveness. Uh, They are everywhere. They are cheap. Actually, they are free. A patient goes on vacation in Europe. They can always find an AA group uh, there. And I fully understand that it's not for everyone. There are some people who will not take to AA. And I also know about the history that there are some AA groups that did more damage than good because they were very confrontational. I'm quite aware of all that. But at the end of the day, AA is an amazing resource for a patient that should be honestly uh, supported by us. And if I can just say one kind of thing, I just want to acknowledge uh, Dr. Francine Kournos here, who uh, has been uh, such an incredible mentor of mine uh, for, what, 25 or so years
0: now. So thank you, Francine. (laughs) So I... I want to mention another addiction that is uh, becoming increasingly common as our patients age, and that is obesity and eating. And, uh, uh, and um, maybe put in a plug for Weight Watchers or other kinds yeah, of yeah, organizations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, a, so a, a, I mean g- using your sort of paradigm, that's mm-hmm. a behavioral system that uses the same kinds of principles. Yeah. Uh,
1: we didn't talk about behavioral addictions. I touched very, very uh, briefly on uh, internet sex and, and the gambling as the three major uh, behavioral addictions, but there are 12 of them, uh, one of which is food addiction. And when you think about that, it says, come on now, why is that any different than what we've been doing all along? It's a little different approach in that... You feel that uh, if once that brain switch has been flipped on, once you get addicted to food, then the connection between the, the trajectory of your illness and the, the causal agents for that, uh, uh, for that illness is not all that tight. That's what essentially the addiction paradigm offers. But once that brain switch has been flipped, uh, you're going to live with it for a long, long time, if not for the rest of your life, and it's not going to be all that related to what it is that caused the problem uh, to begin with, and chances are that you will need independent behavioral work to keep yourself safe, which is something that a lot of patients who suffer from obesity, from food addiction, uh, find uh, quite helpful. Great.
0: Okay. Are there any other questions? No. Then I want to thank you very much for very, very thank interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so... So that includes our, uh, our course for this year. Thank you all for attending. Um, there are evaluations. We're always interested in making things better. Uh, and we very much, uh, we take them into um, uh, quite seriously and look at them and are always looking for topics and other things that may be missing in the course that would be valuable um, to cover in the interest of both your professional um, career, competence, and also the patience. So thank you very much. Safe journey home. Uh, for those of you who celebrate Passover, have a good sailor.